Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Stephen Gale. I'm delighted to welcome you to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and for what I think promises to be a very special event with our guest, Paul Preston. Um, Paul is Professor of Contemporary Spanish History at the London School of Economics and widely regarded as our leading historian of 20th century Spain. Um, his previous publications include Franco, a biography, Comrades, the Spanish Civil War, and Juan Carlos, a biography. Um, he's now published We Saw Spain Die, Foreign Correspondence in the Spanish Civil War, which will be uh, the basis of our session this afternoon. Um, our format is, we've discussed, we're, Paul and I are going to chat about the book for roughly the first half of the session, and then we'll leave uh, the second half of the session to questions from the floor. Um, and after that, um, Paul will be signing copies of his book in the main book tent on the right as you leave this venue. Um, but first of all, if you would, I'd ask you to join me in welcoming Paul Preston. Um, re reading this, Paul, it, it struck me very much as a sort of a labour of love, I think. Would that be right? Yes. I mean, I've spent the last 40 years trying to learn about the Spanish Civil War. Um, and maybe one day before I'll die, I'll have cracked it. You know, I mean, it is a very, very complicated business. And at the beginning of the business, for me, I had the immense good fortune to, to meet a man who at the time was the world's greatest expert on the Spanish Civil War, who was a, a roly-poly Texan from the same town that Buddy Holly had been born in, called Herbert Southworth. And my relationship with him started in a weird way. I'd, I'd written what was my first published article, which was about um, the, the monarchists who conspired against the Spanish Republic. It was sort of part of my doctoral thesis. And Hugh Thomas, who I was working with at the time, suggested I sent a copy of this to Southworth. And Southworth, all of his stuff, he was a sort of ferocious forensic detective. And I was terrified. I thought, oh my God, you know, you know, if I send this to him, he's just going to rip it apart. Anyway, I sent it to him and I got this wonderful letter back which said, dear friend, all my life I've waited for this moment. You know, and it was kind of like he'd named me his heir. And I went to see him, and because of all the stuff I, he lived in France, all the stuff that he'd written gave the, I was expecting this sort of six foot aquiline hatchet faced monster uh, because of the kind of things that he wrote. And instead came across this incredibly lovable, jolly, roly poly man who was exactly as wide as he was tall and hysterically funny and, and you know, li lived making, um, I mean, for his great book, which was, uh, it was published in French, it was called Le Mythe de la Croissade de Franco, the, the myth of the, the crusade. And he gave me a copy and the dedication was for Paul, all this meat and no potatoes. Um, <laughs> and he was into, anyway, we, we became, he, he had no children and, and um, my parents were dead and so on. So we, we ended up having an incredibly close relationship. And he, I mean, he knew so much about the Spanish War. He'd been a, I mean, I don't end up telling the story of his life because it's, it's actually in, it's in the book. But um, he had been a miner 
in in Arizona. He'd learned Spanish working with Spanish miners. He, but he was obsessed with books. And he, in 1936, he'd managed to get a job in the Library of Congress in Washington. He started writing articles about the Spanish Civil War. And he became very involved and, in fact, knew all the people, or not all of them, but knew most of the people that, that I write about in this book. And so the names of the people in this book were always kind of, it was a conversation we had lots of times, people that he admired. Anyway, so in the meanwhile, you know, I, I went on, I did various things on the Spanish Civil War and, and on Franco and on the transition to democracy and so on and so forth. And then in 2005, someone got in touch with me from Spain and said that they were organizing this big exhibition about war correspondence and would I write part of the catalogue? And I thought, oh, you know, this is not what I want to be doing at the moment because I'm actually in the middle of writing a huge book about all the violence in the Spanish Civil War called the Spanish Holocaust. But anyway, I said, well, I'll have a go. I'll write a couple of pages. And because once I got into it, I realized this was like, the passion of my life, that, that this brought back all of my uh, conversations with Herbert, who died in, 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 in 1998. And I got completely hooked, um, rereading books that I'd read 30 years earlier, but didn't quite, you know, the, the thing is, of course, every time you read a book, you become a different person. Uh, you, know, you've be, you have become a different person in the meanwhile. You see things in the book you didn't see first time round and so on. And so what started off was supposedly two or three pages for this catalogue. In the end, I pr presented 30 pages for the catalogue, and I said to the guy, oh, I'm really sorry. It's the, he said, no, that's what I wanted. Yeah, I, knew, I knew I could trick you into doing it. Um, and then, of course, I just got into the book and, and in a way, it is a labor, it's a labor of love in two ways. A, it's my kind of thank you to Herbert for everything that, that I got from him and learned from him. But also, and this was unexpected, as I wrote the book, and it was very much, I mean, it's about obviously correspondence on both sides, but the bulk of the correspondence, uh, even though they had no particular political axe to grind when they went to Spain, all ended up as fierce supporters of the, of the Spanish Republic and the cause of democracy against fascism. That as I was finding stuff that they'd written, either in diaries, letters, or even books that they wrote at the time, time after time I would find sentences, and I'll read some of them to you later, uh, that kind of summed up, because I'm always asking myself, why have I, you know, I'm a scouser, I support Everton, and why, why have I waited, and my wife often asks me, you know, what, what is it that's made me devote my life to Spain? And I suppose she thinks it's like me supporting Everton, you know, I'm always trying to, I'm, I, my life's about trying to reverse the result of the Spanish Civil War, <laughs> when I'm not trying to reverse the result of Everton's endless defeats, you know. And, um, so many of these quotations I found just summed up exactly how I feel about what happened in Spain and, and, and the way it was betrayed by the democracies and so on. So in the end, it became a very moving experience. Although, as we'll also see, I mean, some of the things in the book are actually hysterically funny because, the, needless to say, as with all wars, the antics of the war correspondents when they were trying to forget some of the horrors they'd seen during the day were you know quite wild and amusing so yes it was a it was a labor of love sorry <laughs> sorry for rabbiting on so long i want i wanted to ask you about southworth um you, you get the impression with him he sort of 
he, the war continued for him. He, there was this sort of guerrilla activity against the Franco regime, it seems to me, that sort of went on pretty much throughout his life. Absolutely. Um, I mean, basically, he had, he actually spent the Spanish Civil War in Washington working for the Spanish Republican Embassy. And then during the, the Second World War, he joined the American Army when, when America joined the war. And he ended up with what was called the American Office of War Information in North Africa as a, a kind of you know, black propagandist, you know, doing propaganda against, against the Axis. And at the end of the war, he decided, he was so hoping that with the defeat of Hitler and Mussolini that Franco would be next, he decided to stay on. And during this time, he'd fallen in love with a, with a French woman he'd met in, in Algeria. And she persuaded him to buy up a whole pile of junk, which was uh, surplus radio equipment that the Americans were leaving behind. And with this surplus radio equipment, he set up Radio Tangier and was staying on, if you like, waiting for the day when, when Franco would fall, because Franco didn't fall until he died in 1975. But all the time, he, he bought every book that came out anywhere in the world to do with the Spanish Civil War. And he built this amazing library um, you know, at, the, at the point at which he, he, he no longer had the money or the space for it, he had 15,000 books on, on, on the Spanish Civil War, which late ended up in the University of California. And he, he had this amazing memory. Everything he read, he could recall exactly. So his first book, which was called The Myth of the Crusader Franco, was incredible. I mean, it's a, it's a savage and important and dramatic book, but it's also very funny because, A, as I said before, had a terrific sense of humour, but he could remember the inconsistencies between all the things said by the Francoists in trying to justify what they'd done during the war. And oddly enough, um, when this book came out in the early, in 1963, uh, at roughly the same time, I mean, two things, two things were happening. It was published by an exiled publishing house in Paris called Radio Iberico, who had also published the Spanish translation of Hugh Thomas's very popular book on the Spanish Civil War. And both of these were being smuggled into Spain, where, of course, there was a total blackout on anything that resembled the truth about the Spanish Civil War. And so Franco's government decided to set up this unit called the, the, the Department of Civil War Studies in the Ministry of Information to counteract the impact of Hugh Thomas and particularly Southworth. And I found stuff from, from this period in which Southworth was, was denominated um, public enemy number one. And, and so, in a way, his works did more damage to the Franco regime than many of the, you know, the physical attacks by guerrilla groups and so on, which, which, which were always a flop. So yes, his whole life uh, was about that, in a, in a, in a way. Um, and of course, uh, he lived to see Franco die, but he never saw, and he, he lived to see um, democracy restored. And of course, he was hailed when he went, finally went, started to go into Spain, uh, was immensely popular as a lecturer. Very funny thing was that um, because he was a Texan, any sentence that he said could take anything up to 10 minutes because he was, you know, he, he used to speak in this real slow drawl. 
and he would speak Spanish in exactly the same way. Um, <laughs> but, and you know, Spanish is normally sort of quick-fire machine gun kind of language. But he was immensely popular, you know. Uh, so in a way, he had some satisfaction. But, you know. um, uh, in the book, you quote Orwell, George Orwell at one point. Uh, if I remember rightly, it's, he's reviewing a book about the Spanish Civil War, if I remember rightly. But he says something about um, it's impossible to write about the Spanish Civil War without being partisan. It's impossible to be sort of objective about it. I can't quite remember the quote. But you, and you mentioned at the beginning that um, most, many of the correspondents, when they went to Spain, were notionally neutral, but ceased to be so. Can you talk a bit more about that? What, what swayed them? Well, I think two things. I mean, it's true, the bulk of the... I mean, obviously, there were some correspondents on both sides who were deeply committed. I mean, there were people who were... I mean, in a way, that as one of the things I... It, one of the points I make in the book is that the correspondents were a bit like a, an intellectual international brigade, or they, they were like the international volunteers on both sides. Uh, although more foreigners fought for Franco, most of them were sent, you know, the, the Germans or the Italians, there were, there were relatively few volunteers. Uh, and there were volunteers, obviously, uh, on both sides. And in a way, I think the, 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 the war correspondents reflected that. But actually, apart from those who went who were already committed, either those who were communists or pro-fascist, the bulk were just sort of jobbing journalists. And one of them, uh, who I think was actually one of the most important war correspondents or journalists of the 20th century, an American called Herbert Matthews, he was totally neutral. I mean, it, it, uh, I mean several of them had been, before they, they came to Spain, almost directly from Abyssinia, where they'd gone to cover the Italian invasion uh, of Abyssinia. And Matthews, for instance, was very pro-fascist. He thought that the Italians were doing a great job in civ civilising this um, you know, benighted country that was Ethiopia or Abyssinia. And yet, he, he ended up as a, as a fierce partisan of, of, of the Spanish Republic. And that happened to lots of them. I think there were two reasons. One was actually not to do with Spain at all. It was the same reason why people joined the international brigades. It was this feeling, if we don't fight fascism in Spain, if we don't stop what's happening in, in Madrid and Barcelona, Paris will be next and then London. And, and so part of what fired them up was this determination to wake up their own governments, to wake up the French government, the British government, the American government, to the sheer stupidity of appeasement and, 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 and the way they were blind to, to what Hitler and Mussolini were, do, were doing in Spain. So that was part of it. The other thing, I think, which is something that's, I think, forgotten a lot, because an awful lot of tripe written and said about the Spanish Civil War, is the fact that you know, ordinary people in Spain kept on fighting for the Spanish Republic for two and a half years. It would have been very easy when they faced bombardment, starvation, to have just thrown in the towel. And yet they kept on fighting to the end. Why, you know, why? Because the Spanish Republic had done so much for them in terms of educational reform, social reform, in all kinds of ways it, it, it had done things for ordinary people. And I think when the correspondents saw how ordinary, I mean you've all seen newsreels and photographs I'm sure, that they saw how they stood up against the bombing and so on. That, that you know, they got, I mean there's one quote I'd like to read you, one of the, 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 the if I can find it, um, one of the really great correspondents who actually was killed during the war was a Frenchman called Louis de la Pre. And in one of his, he, he wrote 
amazing and harrowing accounts of, of the bombing of Madrid. And I've got the wrong glasses on, so I'll, you know, I'll disappear behind this for a minute. Um, and just before he died, he wrote in one of his articles, what follows is not a set of prosecutors' charges. It is an actuary's process. I number the ruins. I count the dead. I weigh the blood spilt. All the images of martyred Madrid, which I will try to put before your eyes, and which most of the time defy description, I have seen them. I can be believed. I demand to be believed. I care nothing about propaganda literature or the sweetened reports of the ministries. I do not follow any, any orders of parties or churches, and here you have my witness. You will draw your own conclusions. Now that, I think, kind of sums up the second aspect of that they were fired by sheer indignation of what was going on and, and by admiration for ordinary people. And, and, and their writings are full of stories. You know, they'd go places and peasants who had hardly any food would insist on sharing their food with them. And, so, and that, all of that led to this very deep admiration for, you know, for ordinary Spanish Republicans. Also, I mean, some of these, they were right in there with the fighting, weren't they? I mean, they weren't observing this from a safe distance. No, one of the big, I mean, one of the themes in the book, of course, are the differences in the censorship on both sides. On, on the Franco side, the censorship was absolutely ferocious. And what, if, if people managed to, um, to evade the censorship and get their stuff published back home, that the newspapers were, 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 were kind of scrutinized so that, and they would be punished. And in fact, uh, one correspondent was shot by the Francoists and many others were interrogated and imprisoned and so on. On the Republican side, it was much more easy going and the, the, the correspondents were more or less allowed to go where they wanted and so on. Obviously, their stuff was, as happens in any war, their stuff was uh, scrutinized for sensitive military material. But in the main, they, they had infinitely more freedom than, than those on the Francoist side. And those on the Francoist side could only go to the front in sort of supervised excursions. So they'd all be you know, given a packed lunch and they'd, they'd be sent to uh, particular bits of the front you know, to witness the aftermath of a victory or something. Or things like, of course, when the Francoists entered towns like, say, Toledo, where there was a massacre, or Badajoz, where there was a massacre, they were kept out until after the, you know, the, the, if you like, the, the, the bloody work had been done. But on the Republican side, they had inf you know, much more opportunity to, to get stuck in. And of course, in the case, case of Hemingway, uh, he just became a terrible pain because he was forever giving military commanders advice that they really didn't need. You know? <laughs> Neither use nor ornament. That's another story. <laughs> um, can we talk a bit about the, the, their efforts to persuade their own government? I mean, we, you say that later Roosevelt, for example, expressed regret and, and so on, but nothing was done at the time. But there were certain things, like you mentioned the massacre of Balahoz, for example, I think it was J. Allen, I think, yeah. reported on that. And of course, there's a famous uh, report of Guernica, which you quote extensively in the book. A and yet, I mean, this caused outrage in the media back home in the States, in Britain or wherever, and yet had no, no effect. Well, the, the odd thing is, I mean, it had an effect on public opinion, but public opinion didn't have much effect on, on government policy. Um, right to the end of the Civil War in Britain, for instance, uh, what, what there was in those days in the way of, of public opinion polls. Something, you know, nearly 80% of people supported the Spanish Republic, but that did not sway 
the government in any way. Um, in America, in particular, it was very difficult. I mean, the, the public opinion was much more divided, and it also had much more of, because it was divided, it had much more of a political impact. So, for instance, Roosevelt, whose wife, Eleanor, uh, was quite close to some of the correspondents and had regular, cor regular you know, correspondence in the sense of letter writing. Uh, and she supported the Republic but, but seemed to have little impact on, on FDR because he was terrified about the Catholic vote. And again, the Catholic vote and, and, and also the Catholic Church had an immense impact in the States on what, on what was printed. So again, in the book, I quote, quite a lot of material about how uh, the church used its control over advertising budgets to make sure that certain kind of news about the war wasn't, wasn't printed. Uh, terrible propaganda or pamphlet campaigns were carried out against people like Matthews. Uh, on the New York Times that he worked for, the correspondent who worked in the nationalist zone, who was fiercely pro-Franco and who faked material, his material was always published in full, whereas the material from Matthews, and Matthews was a, a really great correspondent and had a, a very high ethical standards and would never publish anything that he didn't know was true and he would go to immense, through danger and difficulty to make sure he got a story right. His stuff would be tampered with, left out. You know, the people who decided what went on the front page and what went on page 38 with the corset adverts um, that, that, you know, in, in the New York Times, which we think of as a liberal newspaper, but which of course, I mean, the, we also know there's a later story about the, the New York Times hiding the Holocaust. Um, the guys, the, the night desk of any newspaper is, is, the, is, is the group of people who decide what goes on the front page, what news will be published, what news won't be published. And the particular group uh, who ran the night desk, it was called the bullpen in, in the New York Times, effectively conspired to keep out pro-Republican news and to, to favour pro-fascist pro news. So part of it, I mean, the States, I would say, the answer was to do with uh, electoral concerns. That, you know, Roosevelt, although he, and afterwards, Roosevelt admitted to the American ambassador was an ex-newspaper man, Claude Bowers. And afterwards, Roosevelt said to him, you know, you were right all along, it was the worst thing I ever did. And th th there's a lot of evidence of, of regret pointless regret on the part of, of, of Roosevelt. In the case of Britain, of course, the governments of Baldwin and Chamberlain did not care a hoot about public opinion. Public opinion was firmly on the, on, on the side of... Um, I mean, obviously, it's a complicated issue because after the First World War, there was tremendous fear of another war. No one wanted another war. So that, that if you like, played in favour of appeasement. But on the other hand, increasing numbers of people were very aware that you know, what, what Hitler and Mussolini were doing in, in, in Spain, they would do next. Um, but Chamberlain and Baldwin, I mean, they, they hoped that they could use Hitler as a kind of Rottweiler. You know, they could use him to see off uh, Stalin and the Bolsheviks uh, without realising that uh, you know, the Rottweiler would then turn against them. You mentioned, I was going to ask you about, you, we've spoken about the sort of the reactions or the lack of it in the sort of liberal democracies, um, but I was very interested in the, about Koltsov, the, the Russian or the Soviet sort of correspondent, and his reception back home. You mentioned Stalin, so could you talk a bit more about him? Well, one of the things I think, 
I said earlier, I thought you know, there's a lot of tripe written about the Spanish Civil War, and some, some of it was unfortunately Orwell's fault. Um, the, the, probably the one book that most people read about the Spanish Civil War, or possess about the Spanish Civil War, is, is Homage to Catalonia by Orwell, which is a, a very great book in many respects. And if it's taken for what it actually is, which is the, the account, the, the kind of worm's eye view uh, of a volunteer who fought on one particular front for a, for, for a couple of months and was then in Barcelona for a few days, then it's a great eyewitness account. The problem is, because Orwell was fighting with the Trotskyists, he got a particular notion and he interpreted what he saw in terms of Stalin trying to destroy the Spanish Republic, which is, is nonsense of the, of, of the First Order. Uh, and this is really, this is a difficult one, because to say anything good about Stalin, you know, I can almost see people saying, oh, so you approve of the Gulag, do you? And it's not about, if we're just talking about Spain, Stalin, for his own reasons, and after all, everybody, politicians everywhere, run their foreign policy in what they think is national interest, except, of course, Britain, where it's run in what they think American national interest is. But that's another issue. But normally, most politicians, most leaders, devise foreign policy in terms of what they think their national interest is. And in 1936, Stalin's first reaction to the outbreak of war in Spain was we want nothing to do with it because at the time, Soviet foreign policy was what was called collective security. It was based on fear of Nazi Germany and its, its main plank was to try to secure alliance with France and if possible with Britain. So the idea that there might be a revolution in Spain was terrifying to the Kremlin. That was the last thing they wanted. So the, the idea that we read all the time that, that actually Stalin was trying to set up a Soviet satellite in Spain is absolute nonsense. At no point, I mean, when they find, basically what happened is that by September of 1936, the speed with which Franco was advancing with the help of Hitler and Mussolini made Stalin change his mind. He thought, we've got to do something because any minute now there's going to be a third fascist state on France's borders and that, that's going to tip the international balance of power against us, Soviet Russia. So he decided to, that he would make li or send limited help. Of course, in terms of the weaponry, that had to be paid for. But there were never more, at any point over the whole of the, the Spanish Civil War, I mean, probably there were about 5,000 Soviet personnel, and at no point were there more than 3,000. And the bulk of them were engineers, mechanics, t tank drivers, pilots, and so on. Plus, of course, a limited number of security agents. And of course, the, the Soviet security services were there, and they did kill people. But, and again, this is always a difficult one, because if I say they killed only 80 people, sounds like, I, you know, I mean, that's 80 people too many. But by comparison with the hundreds of thousands of people who were killed in Spain, I th there's a misunderstanding. What the Soviets were doing, which is outrageous, was trying to kill foreign Trotskyists. And that's what, that's basically what they did. There were, I don't, you know, th th there may have been a couple of Spaniards who got mixed up in all of this. But anyway, the, the consequences, we've got this notion that the Soviets were there wreaking havoc um, which again, I, you know, is, 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 sim is simply not the case. And there is, I mean, one of the interesting things, one of the Soviet personnel who was there was this man, 
there's, the, there's a chapter about in the book called Mikhail Koltsov. Mikhail Koltsov was the, the great star of Soviet journalism, but he had a Trotskyist past. And he went to Spain, and of course, in 1936, the purges were starting in Moscow. Life in Russia was pretty grim. And he came to Spain and had the same kind of exhilaration as the British and American correspondents that I was talking about before, this immense sense of inspiration about ordinary people fighting for something that they thought was worthwhile. And he wrote these great articles, which were devoured in, in, in the Soviet front page of Pravda every day, wrote these articles. And when he finally went back uh, in late 1937, he began to put them together into a book. And the book came out in 1938. And in fact, my theory, apart from the fact that Stalin was always a bit suspicious of him because he, he had a Trotskyist past, here was a man writing about the sheer exhilaration of a people united in, in, in one cause at a time when Stalin was annihilating the revolution. And I think that the basic, I mean, there were lots of, the specific reason was, of course, that he clashed with a dreadful human being who was the, the Comintern's head of the international brigades, a man called André Marti, a French communist, otherwise known to his friends as the Butcher of Albacete. Um, and Koltsov had crossed with, with Marti, and Marti wrote a, a, a vicious letter of denunciation to Stalin. That was probably the trigger. But I think the big thing was that somebody writing about how exhilarating uh, an experience Spain was made such a contrast with this awful atmosphere, this bleak, gloomy atmosphere of daily fear and terror in the Soviet Union that he had to be, he had to be eliminated. You mentioned that sort of the exhilaration in his articles and there is a sense where, later in the book that Quite a few people, they never had, it was the high point of their lives, it seems, some of these correspondents. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, to me, one of the best bits, uh, well, not the best, or the most moving bits, I probably won't be able to find them now. There's one, one of the people who was there, I mean, I'll just read this one. Um, one, one of the people who was in Spain was a woman who, at the time, was still considered a significant novelist, and, it'd be, and yet today is totally forgotten. I'd be astonished if anybody has even heard of her. Josephine Herbst, anyone heard of Josephine Herbst? Uh, but in the 1930s, in the 20s and 30s, she was considered a significant novelist um, in the States. And she was there, and she wasn't there very long. I mean, she was in Spain for about three months in the spring of 1937. But anyway, this actually is the end of, uh, at the end of the book. Um, in February 1966, Josie went to see the Spanish Civil War documentary Mourir à Madrid by the French director Frédéric Rossif, and she wrote that night to a friend, I wouldn't have wanted anyone I knew to be seated near me, not unless they too had gone through the same experience. I not only felt as if, as if I were dying, but that I had died. And afterwards, I sat in the lobby for a good while, trying to pull myself together, and the whole scene outside and the street when I got there seemed completely unreal. I couldn't connect with anything or feel that it, it meant anything. Somewhat in the same way that I had felt when I got down from the plane in Toulouse after I flew out of Barcelona and had expected to enjoy ordering a real meal for a change and instead sobbing over an omelette. 
all I could bear to try to eat. Sorry, I'm going to have to read it this way. And looking at people calmly pass, passing, sorry, and looking at people calmly passing by as if I had entered into a nightmare where the real world had suddenly been wiped off with a sponge and vanished forever. And actually, sitting in the lobby, it came to me that the most real, in the most real sense, that my most, my most vital life did indeed end with Spain. Nothing so vital, either in my personal life or in the life of the world, has ever come again. And in a deep sense, it has all been a shadow picture for years and years. Ended. I knew it would end, and with defeat. Nothing was going to stop World War II. Nothing. And most of the time since then has been lived on buried treasure of the earlier years in Spain, on a kind of bounty I could still take nourishment from. It is all too repetitive and too terrible, with no lessons ever learned. I think that, I mean, the, the, the book is full, actually, of, of, of comments from people about how important, uh, you know, Spain was to them. And after, as I was saying to you earlier when we were chatting, um, some of the quotes that, that I found, in a way, I mean, I, this sound, will probably sound pretentious, but I don't mean it to be at all, kind of explained why I've spent 40 yeah. years of my life trying to overturn the results of the Spanish Civil War. We take some questions. By all yeah. means, yeah. Very happy to take some questions. Um, we've got a colleague with a radio mic. It's very helpful if you let them come to you so that everybody else can hear the question. I can see a hand over the far side. Uh, put your hand up. Thank you. It's always seemed to me that the Spanish anarchists got a bad press all round. Now, am I correct in thinking the CNT were by far the largest union in the Republic, and arguably the militias that were organised under their auspices saved the Republic in the early days? So I'd be interested why, in a, some publications, not your own, they tend to be airbrushed. Well, it's a complicated issue, of course. One of the, you know, the, the one of the big differences as to you know why did, why Franco won and the Republic lost. Leaving aside the, you know, I mean, the basic reason is the international situation. But one of the big differences, of course, is that the left was deeply divided, uh, and the right wasn't. You know, the, the have-nots had all kinds of conflictive solutions as to their plight and the haves knew very clearly what they want, what they had to do to keep hold of what they had. Now in the case of the labour movement or the, the left in general, broadly speaking there were three divisions. There were the anarchists of the CNT and you're right that the, the CNT was the biggest uh, union organisation, although wildly disorganised of course precisely because they were anarchists. There was, there was a hostility to any kind of centralised organisation. So. The, the CNT very rarely, you know, was, was easily defeated by the forces of order long before there was a war because it, it, it was never able to organise a coordinated action of, of any kind. Then the next uh, largest organisation was the UGT, which was the Socialist, uh, the Socialist Party, the PSOE, and, and the UGT, the Socialist Organisation. And then there were the Communists, who at the beginning of the war were tiny. There were maybe 3,000 members of the Communist Party. The big issue, of course, is that the areas of strength of these unions were different. So the CNT was very big in Catalonia and the UGT was, was dominant in, in Madrid. If we take those as the two principal fronts, you know, if you like, of two principal 
areas at the beginning of the war. What happened was that in towns where the CNT was dominant, Zaragoza and Seville for instance, those areas fell very rapidly to the rebels, although you would have thought they wouldn't. And that, I think, tells you something about anarchist disorganization. In the case of Barcelona, where it is absolutely true the, the, the rebellion, the military coup was defeated, it wasn't just defeated by the anarchists. Oddly enough, Barcelona was one of the very few places where the civil guard remained loyal. So the, the, the military coup was defeated in Barcelona by a combination of the anarchists and, um, and, and the civil guard. But then there's a whole other issue, which is that which which can be summed up as the revolution versus war. You know, you've, you've got a military coup. Very quickly, Franco has got the support of Hitler and Mussolini. The Republic is denied the possibility of defending itself by the Brit British French policy of non-intervention, and therefore the more moderate forces of the Republic, that's to say the liberal Republicans and the socialists, are trying to build a war effort. Whereas the anarchists and, and, and the Trotskyists, who I haven't mentioned because they're even a smaller group even than, than the Communist Party, what they want to do is to make a revolution. Now, there is quite a big literature that, and in a sense Orwell is, is, is part of it, that makes the point that if this revolution had been made, then the Republic would have won the war. Well, of course, the only basis for that argument is the Republic didn't go down the revolutionary road, it lost the war, and so they go, therefore, if they'd gone down the revolutionary road, they would have won the war, which is rubbish. You know, that, 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 that is not actually the case. And so, in a way, most of the studies of um, the internal politics of the Spanish Republic are about this war versus revolution debate. It's beautifully put, there's a great book by a British anarchist uh, called Vernon Richards, in which he has this sentence, the people in arms uh, won the revolution, the people's army lost the war, which sums up that, that argument. But actually, of course, can you imagine a situation, you know, to make a revolution, to restructure a society totally, and of course, taking into account the total lack of organization of the anarchists, is something that takes years. So it would have involved some kind of negotiation with Franco where you'd, they would have had to have said, look, you know, do you mind just holding off on the war for a while while we make a revolution? And when, when we're ready, then we'll fight you. I mean, it, very difficult to make a revolution and, and, and create a war effort because a war effort, unfortunately, has to be centralised. You need control over the economy. You need control o over factory production. You need central control over deciding what is produced. Was of course, because the anarchists didn't have that, local, you know, local factories were free to do whatever they wanted, and if they wanted to produce lipstick cases instead of, instead of uh, cartridges, well, so they did. So that, I think, is, is the basic reason why um, the CNT, if you like, gets a bad press. The other is, of course, that uh, in the atrocities that were committed in, in the, uh, the Republican zone, in the first three months of the war, the anarchists played, shall we say, a slightly disproportionate role. Well, that's not to say it was exclusively uh, the fault of, of the anarchists. That's a whole other and complicated issue. Um, 
One of the odd things is that, of course, right-wing accounts of the Republic and of the Civil War are very sympathetic to the CNT. And that, of course, you, makes you a bit, a bit suspicious because effectively you've got authors who, who cry crocodile tears about the anarchists. I mean, anarchists who they normally wouldn't have the slightest sympathy with. But because the main force that tried to impose a centralised war effort was the communists, what a great way to beat the communists around the head than to accuse them of killing these poor innocent anarchists who were anything but, but innocent. It's a very complicated and murky business that I've probably not done justice to, but best I can do in two minutes. There was a hand over there, yeah. And there wasn't it. Well, you... <coughs> it is sometimes said that at the end of the war, it is the victors who write the history. Is this not a rather uh, different case in, uh, in historians of the Spanish Civil War? I like to think so. <laughs> and this goes back to what I was saying before about, in a way, o overturning the war, o overturning the result, which of course is, I mean, uh, a ridiculous notion. But it's certainly the case, you see, that from, I mean, it, it's difficult to say what one means when one says the end of the war because, I mean, in another context, I'm often asked about how many people were killed by the Francoists before or after the war. And because the war ended formally on the 1st of April 1939, that's what the beginning and the end, or sorry, the end of the war before and after the end is taken as meaning. In fact, the war ended the minute the Francoists took over in any particular place. So in some cases, you know, the, the military coup started in, in North Africa on the 17th of July 1936. In some places the war was over before midnight on the 17th of July. There were other places where it was over in the first few days, the 18th, the 19th and so on. And then of course there were other places where it wasn't over on, until literally the, the end of March of 1939. But wherever the Francoists took over, Two things happened. One was the atrocities started, and of course they were they were massive and, and, and numerically four times those that occurred in the in the Republican zone. But also the rewriting of the war, of the rewriting of the origins of the war, what the war was about. So instead of I mean what it really was about, which was stopping the reforms of the Republic, stopping giving women rights, stopping agrarian reform stopping ordinary people uh, being given basic education. All of those things which the right in Spain regarded as outrageous uh, challenges to the establishment. That wasn't what, the, it, a, a literature was produced, a horrific literature was produced, much of it for children and so on, which gave the idea that, that the war was a patriotic effort to stop Bolshevik bestiality. Well, there wasn't any Bolshevik bestiality in Spain before the 18th of July 1936. And then, of course, the Franco regime was in power. I mean, obviously, Franco died on the 25th of November, sorry, on the 20th of November 1975, but his democracy didn't come back until two years later. And, of course, the totalitarian aspects of the Franco regime were not met by a, a, a kind of parallel. Uh, totalitarianism in, in democracy. So Francoist, the Francoist version, still thrives wi wi within Spain today. So you have the victor's version, if you like. And take, this takes us back to the beginning, that in a way, why Southworth's work was so 
regarded as so horrific and why he was named public enemy number one because he was the first person really to deconstruct to take apart this version of the victors but along the way of course there were foreign historians who I mean up to 1975 had very little access to uh, internal documentation in Spain because archives were closed and so on. I mean I could tell you stories of how I did my PhD having to bribe um, archivists with cigars and bottles of sherry and something like that. That's a whole other story but um, there always was another version and of course since 1977 since uh, democracy has been back there has been increasingly a number of, of rather wonderful Spanish historians, some of whom were trained in, here in the UK, and, and the, the balance that, if you like, we, particularly British and to a lesser extent American historians, the, the dominance that, if you like, Franco gave us has, and it's a very good thing, has died away, and, and, and now you know, the best history of the Spanish Civil War is being written by Spaniards. Yeah, uh, fourth row here. Yeah, thanks very much, Paul. Uh, I really enjoyed your book on holiday this year, and I'd recommend it to the whole room. But one of the things that comes out the book is actually the difference in approach. Uh, in particular, there's a kind of fratricide among some of the correspondents, probably exemplified by the Hemingway Dos Passos, but there's other uh, disputes that happen between some of the correspondents on uh, within it. And you contrast that with the dedication that Southworth had to the, the task in hand and to actually sort of uh, continue the cause of the Republic. And I was wondering if you could unpack that a bit more, you know, as to whether that actually reflected the Spanish struggle between 36, 39, or whether that was just personal conflicts. Well, I think, <coughs> I mean, you're right, inevitably personal issues um, come about. And, and one of the chapters in the book in a sense, or the trigger for the chapter, is how it was that Hemingway and Dos Passos, of course, at the time, considered the two great, two greatest novelists in the world. Although no, nowadays, I think anyone reads Dos Passos, but anyway. Uh, and they had a falling out, but the falling out, of course, went back to all kinds of things. Dos Passos owed Hemingway money, and Hemingway was never very gracious about that, and so on and so forth. Uh, Hemingway had an industrial sex life and Dos Passos didn't, didn't approve and you know, there are all kinds of, of other issues. And in the end, um, the, big, the, the big issue that divided them was the disappearance of a very close friend of Dos Passos, who was a man called Jose Robles. And it's a sort of detective story in the middle of the book, and I'm not going to go into it now because it's take too long, but basically this guy disappeared and was almost certainly knocked off by, by the Russians or by security services run by the Russians. And that's part of the mystery. The big mystery is what, why? Because what the Russians didn't do was bump people off just for the fun of it. They usually, I mean, you might not approve of their reasons, but reasons they had. And so the big issue was whether or not this guy Robles was working for the fifth column. Um, I, for reasons, and I you, know, you have to buy the book if you want to find out, I, I think he probably was. Um, but other people who obviously uh, want to spread, the, you know, push the idea of how sinister the Russian activity was, see him as completely innocent. But again, it, it, it doesn't make sense. But so in that case, in the case of Hemingway and Dos Passos, the issue was very much a personal one. Elsewhere, um, 
Of course there were differences because, you know, some correspondents were, I mean, the, the, if, if you were a communist, you would be writing for the Daily Worker, and, or, or, you know, either the American Daily Worker or, 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 or the British Daily Worker. Um, so that there would, there would be disputes, but I'm not particularly aware of other than other than ones that that were personal. I mean, I you know I go into uh, detail about all kinds of um, you know personal relationships. So, for instance, I mentioned earlier that Herbert Matthews' work was tampered with at the New York Times, whereas his counterpart, the New York Times correspondent with Franco, was a guy called William Carney. Who did the most outrageous things? I mean, for instance, um, what he, before Matthews arrived, he had been the correspondent in the Republican zone. And he used to sort of sneak sensitive military information into his articles. So on one of his articles actually, well, he, he'd left, his last article before leaving included a map with all of the anti-aircraft uh, emplacements in Madrid clearly marked. and. He, you know, he, you can imagine relations between him and Matthews weren't great, but that was because Matthews always tried to tell the truth and Carney didn't. But you've probably read the book more recently than I have, but I, I, honestly, I honestly can't think of any other um, examples of clashes other than you know, the very big ideological ones like that, you know, people who supported Franco, pe pe people who, who didn't. Well, there's the that that's more to do with the censorship. I mean, obviously, um, the, the one of the interesting by themes, or you know, sub themes of the book, is the the Republican censorship um, in Madrid. Uh, the central figure was a guy called Arturo Barea, who uh, incredibly interesting man who, because of all the things he saw and so on, ended up having a nervous breakdown, managed to, to get exile in Britain, and wrote what I would have to say is, the, the, if not the best book about the Spanish Civil War, a book I, would, I, I cannot recommend enough. It's a wonderful, wonderful novel. Well, it's, a kind of, it's his autobiography, which is sold as a novel, but actually everything in it is true. And, and the names aren't disguised, so you know it's it's it's, it's I, I think of it more of an autobiography. It's called *The Forging of a Rebel*. Absolutely wonderful book. He clashed with a woman called Constancia de la Mora, who who, if you like, took over from him, uh, and she was much closer to the communists. So of course she uh, she did have minor clashes with people, and she was quite a she was a sort of. Um, very domineering, aristocratic woman. And so a lot of the clashes really were personality clashes. She was, for instance, one of the, 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 again, one of the great correspondents I write about, and I think Nick Rankin, who was here earlier uh, in, in the festival, wrote about him in his book on uh, Churchill's, I don't know what it's called now, the, the, the guy, Churchill's Wizards, his book is called, and he writes about this journalist called Sefton Delmer. Sefton Delmer, who was, fairly right-wing, although again ended up being very entranced by, by the Republic, although he always remained pretty right-wing. Sefton Delmer was the guy who'd accompanied Hitler round, uh, to see the remnants of the Reichstag fire, and, and was very close to, to, the, to the Nazis and so on, although later during the war 
uh, ran Churchill's black, you know, black propaganda operations. Anyway, he, he, he was in Spain, and he had terrible clashes with, with Constantino de la Mora. He was a very clever man. All the, all the other correspondents ref called him seldom defter. And he had terrible clashes with her because he was dead scruffy. I mean, he, um, he always went around in amazing, a bit like me, really, always went around in amazingly aged gear, and, and she being an aristocrat, I mean, it was silly. You know, she, she just, she was miffed because she felt he was disrespectful by not showing up in a suit and tie kind of thing. And he would deliberately wear dirtier and dirtier gardening trousers uh, when, when he had to go and see her. But no, I don't, I'm not aware of clashes between the correspondents. I'm, certainly clashes between the correspondents and the censorship, very much so. Chap just behind you, just there. And that'll be the last question, because I think we should finish with one of the funniest stories. Um, I just wondered if um, the, the, the litany of British action during the, the Civil War uh, was very depressing, if you to read it. I just wondered, was, did any members of the political or intellectual uh, establishment in Britain act honourably or effectively? Well, uh, I mean, Anthony Eden resigned as Foreign Secretary in, in, in protest against the appeasement of, of, of Mussolini. Um, in the main, uh, I mean, there, there were other, there were all, the Duchess of Athol, of course, who was, uh, I suppose, as a Scottish aristocrat, uh, she worked tirelessly for, for the Spanish Republic. But in the main, what we would think of as, you know, the toffs in Westminster, n no. I mean, Sure. So this, let, let this lady have a question. I want to ask you if you think that were any British spies in Spain helping the British government. My family, my I'll repeat it. was a secretary to Alfonso Mubarak Obama. My uncle, um, knew Marjorie Hill, who ran the British American Hospital. And I don't know if you know the story behind that. They had to help the Republican cause. Um, and Could I you say what the question is, please? The question is, do you think that the British government had British spies in Spain? The question yeah. is about whether there were British spies in Spain. Right, and the short answer is yes. Uh, and, and I mean, one of the reasons why the British wanted spies, I mean, every, Spain was awash with spies at the time. And one of the main reasons, of course, was that uh, huge advances would be, were taking place in military technique. Uh, the Russian tanks were state of the art. The Germans tried out the Messerschmitt 109, the Stuka, you know, all, all of the, the Blitzkrieg was, you know, Guernica was the first uh, practice of, 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 of Blitzkrieg, or ground air coordination as it's called. So, the, in fact, the place was awash with spies, and in fact, uh, bit by bit, information is now coming out in terms of reports that are now being made available to researchers that were produced by British agents. What is difficult to find out is, is who was there. Now, of course, there are, there are famous ones. Kim Philby was there, but actually Kim Philby was working for the Russians. One of the odd cases is Graham Greene's brother. Graham Greene's brother, uh, Herbert Greene, worked in Spain, as a, was in Spain as a spy. And Graham Greene's novel, The Confidential Agent, is very much about that. What is weird is that Hubert Green's book, which is called Secret Agent in Spain, does not make it clear whose side he was on. It's one of the most puzzling books I have ever read, and I've read it about four times trying to see if I can crack what it's about. 
there's lots of information to make it absolutely clear he was there. You know, the, the things he says about who he met in different places at different times make it quite clear he was there. But he talks about meeting people, handing reports over and so on, and gives not the slightest clue as to, uh, as to which side he was on. At the beginning of the book is a page in code in which he says are all the answers to the book. And I gave it to someone I know who's in this line of business. And, uh, and they said, oh, yeah, we have no problem cracking that. Well, they've been at it now for four months, and they still... <laughs> and I actually think it's probably gibberish taken out of the phone book, but anyway. <laughs> but the short answer is yes. I'll come and see you afterwards. I would like that. Please do. Um, it's a serious subject, but finish on one of the funniest stories. Well, there are quite a lot of sort of tragicomic stories in it. I mean, ranging from, of course, a lot about the antics. I, I mentioned earlier the antics of the, of the journalists trying to forget some of the horrors they saw. And, and a lot of these took place in the Hotel Florida in Madrid. And there's one rather good story about one day when the, the, um, the hotel was under massive bombardment. And as a result of all of the people who ran out of bedrooms, it was possible to see who was sleeping with whom. And that was how Hemingway's affair with Martha Gellhorn came to light. But um, there were other things, like, for instance, I, I, I said earlier that the... Um, the Frankoists shot one correspondent and arrested and interrogated quite a lot on, and expelled many, they expelled about 30. On the Republican side, only one correspondent was expelled and she was a young American woman called Kitty Bowler. And the reason she was expelled was that she was actually the lover of the, the man who was command, uh, uh, became commander of the British Battalion in the International Brigade, a guy called Tom Wintringham. And basically, to cut a very long story short, the reason she was expelled was that André Marty, this dreadful butcher of Albacete I was telling you about before, decided that for her to be having an affair with a bloke who was 20 years older than her, had false teeth and was completely bald, meant she had to be a Trotskyist. LAUGHTER uh, and then there's another story, a rather sad story, about uh, a chap. He was the, the son, some of you have heard of Gilbert Murray, who was the great classicist, great professor of, of classics. And his son Basil had an unhappy marriage and went to Spain. Uh, and they wouldn't let him in the International Brigade because he was totally useless. And he got a job with the Hearst Press. And because he spent most of his time trying to sort of uh, link up with women of one kind or another, al almost always unsuccessfully, he got very, in, in the port in Valencia, they, would, they had various kind of small-scale zoos and circuses and one thing. Anyway, one of them, there was a pole, and on top of the pole, this goat used to balance with all four legs kind of together on top of the pole. And he got so entranced with this goat that he managed to work into every story he wrote a mention of the goat. And William Hurst, you know, the, the famous William, got so fed up with this, he got the sack. So he took to drink. And on one occasion, he went out with an American correspondent called Ed Knobloch. And they were in the port, and they'd been on this sort of pub crawl. And in one of these circuses, there was a female ape. Well, he, Basil, as he was called, decided he was in love with the ape. So he decided he wanted to buy the ape. And the owner of the ape didn't want to sell it. But there were a group of anarchist militiamen who said, you know, this guy's a foreigner, he's come to fight for us. You know, he, he should, if he wants to buy the ape, he should be able to buy the ape. So they bought the ape and they took the ape. They went, the ape then went on the pub crawl with them. 
And then they finally ended up in what some of you may have been in, the Hotel Victoria, a very nice hotel in Valencia. And he wanted to take the ape into the hotel and the, the manager of the hotel wouldn't let them. And they, the militia men said, of course, you know, the place is full of apes. Why shouldn't he take his ape in? So, so anyway, so off he went. And according to um, Knobloch, the guy who was with his memoirs, the last he heard was Basil running a bath for the ape. Uh, and, and saying he was going to put all these, you know, sort of various unguents and so on in the water and so on. Anyway, Knobloch went off and after a few days hadn't heard from him. So when he went back, he found both the ape and Basil sort of shivering and somehow Basil had caught sort of ape pneumonia off the ape and you can imagine some of the stories that went round about how, how this had transpired. <laughs> anyway, in the end, uh, he had to be... Um, transported back to England, managed to cable off something like 30 proposals of marriage to different women in London, but unfortunately he died before he got the answers. I mean, it's a very sad story. It's a very sad book, in fact. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, Paul will be signing copies of his books over in the main book tent on the right as we go out. As he's already said, he's happy to chat further. Um, if there's anything you'd like to ask him. One thing I would respectfully request, if you, given the tight turnaround of events in here, if you could let us scamper out first, um, that would be appreciated. But first of all, please join me in thanking Paul Preston. Thank you.